Uh, greetings, electric utility enthusiasts. My uh, message in this opening statement is, is a simple one. It's that resource adequacy is not capacity. And I, so I say this is simple because this is something that everybody kind of recognizes that you can't expect 100% output from every resource in uh, times of system stress. So we do things to try to uh, derate uh, all resources down to their likely contributions. But I think in some ways it's not fully appreciated uh, that they're not the same thing. So I uh, take the example of Texas where the, the market reforms there have been under discussion since winter storm URI. And by and large, I think that the conversation has been focused on encouraging more capacity uh, to enter the system. But uh, as, as many are quick to point out, the failures in the in the winter storm there weren't primarily a matter of lack of capacity. It was that the capacity that was there didn't perform uh, to the to the expected uh, to the expectations. So, in other words, resources weren't adequate, even though the system had enough capacity, or at least it had close to enough capacity. So, to really get on my soapbox here, a related mistake that people make is when they say that the failures in the winter storm aren't a market design issue. That's uh, wrong because the, the the great virtue of the energy only market in Texas is that it's directed directed pretty explicitly at the resource adequacy problem and not on capacity. So the energy mo model, or sorry, the energy only model purported to solve the resource adequacy problem. So the fact that the resources weren't adequate means that it was necessarily uh, a problem for market design. So what I think people might mean when they say it wasn't a market design issue is that it wasn't a capacity issue. And that's true. It wasn't a capacity issue, but that really brings me back to the, the, the point of this opening statement, which is that resource adequacy is not capacity. So I hope that sets us up for the, uh, the conversation today. We started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power enthusiasts without and within roll on enthusiasts roll on roll on enthusiasts roll on roll on enthusiasts roll on we're likely recruiting you to come and join on roll on enthusiasts roll on we bring in some people way smarter than us Those in the industry with knowledge to trust We know we aren't perfect, sometimes it's a bust But we'll roll on, enthusiasts roll on I'm Paul Dockery I'm Almaz Nagesh And I'm Matthew Shretnik The Director of Operations and General Counsel for Northwest Requirements Utilities And this week's Public Power Underground Special Correspondent Joining Almaz, Matt, and I is this week's, as this week's celebrity guest star is Professor Jacob Mays. Jacob Mays is an assistant professor in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Cornell University. He is interested in applications of optimization and statistical learning in energy systems. His research focuses on the design and analysis of electricity markets. And one of my favorite interviews from Public Power Underground, uh, Professor Mays, welcome back to Public Power Underground. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Is it okay if we call you Jacob? Absolutely. And one more follow-up. The last time we talked, there was a baby in the background, which was heartwarming and wonderful. But how old is that baby now? Is she's, it crawling yet? She is now, she's walking. She's now 13 she's, months old. Yeah. Um, so so you might hear her. You might hear our three-year-old. It depends, you know, <laughs> who knows what the future may hold. 
Yes, who knows what the future might hold. Um, so uh, Ma- Matt and Almaz are are joining us as well. Matt, welcome back as well. I think it's been a bit since it's you've been, been a on Public Podcast. It has been a, been a minute. I'm very excited to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation, the ability to re-engage. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you. Almaz, are you full of questions? Are you as full of questions as I am? Right out the gate. That that opening was amazing. And I'm, I'm trying to hold back. We're going to get through this. <laughs> questions on the way. Professor questions. comes out swinging. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> questions on the way. I hope you're ready uh, because we probably aren't going to be as polite to you as your students are. Uh, well, I can't give you guys grades. So, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a market design professor's perspective. We'll talk resource adequacy market mechanisms, the Western Resource Adequacy Program as possibly the greatest RA program structure, and the restructuring of the electric sector as attacked as deregulations by the New York Times piece. That sentence was terrible. So we're going to cut that and we're going to go, and a New York Times piece about deregulation will pose a hard question to Professor Mays with a new segment called Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week, a segment I'm very excited about. And then we'll close out the episode by short-circuiting our way through the rest of the topics we didn't get to in a segment we call Short to Ground. But before we get started, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Almaz, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew? I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country, probably than hydro. Hydro is very river specific. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on the Northwest. In America, you're probably right. Yes. Nuclear. Sounds right. Love that about you. Okay. In fact, nuclear energy provides about 50% of the country's carbon-free electricity and Energy Northwest, our friends at Energy Northwest, is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest clean energy future. To learn more, do you you want to know how to learn more, Almaz? Yeah, give me the info. I need to know more. Okay, let's let's learn more. To learn more about Energy Northwest, visit their website at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Our first segment is Public Power Desktop, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy-adjacent news. You've got the first story, Matt. Take it away. Thanks, Paul. Uh, the last time you were on Public Power Underground, you provided a deep dive into a 2021 paper you co-authored with Jesse Jenkins on electricity markets under deep decarbonization. Uh, that was a fun one. And so thank you for that. Um, the interview ended up spanning a host of articles and papers you've co-written, uh, including private risk and social resilience in liberalized electricity markets, asymmetric risk and fuel neutrality in electric electricity capacity markets, um, and uh, and no discussion would be complete without mentioning the Frank Wolock paper on resource adequacy frameworks titled Economic and Political Constraints on the Demand Side of Electricity Industry Restructuring Processes. This time, we want to do a deep dive into a recent paper you co-authored with a Cornell PhD candidate, Han Shu, titled Beyond Capacity, Contractual Form and Electricity Reliability Obligations. 
The article's abstract summarizes its purpose as considering how the financial hedge embedded in alternative resource adequacy contract designs can induce different responses from risk-averse investors with consequences for the resource mix and market structure. Before peppering you with follow-up questions, of which there are plenty, any framing or summary info you'd like to use to set the stage for our listeners? Sure. So I, I kind of did did it a little bit with the, the intro, but the, I think the the one of the main points of the paper is is that in the last uh, uh, twenty years or so, or since the the restructuring of the electricity industry, we've kind of thought about resource adequacy as as falling under three umbrellas. Uh, one is the the traditional vertical integration. One is uh, uh, capacity markets or, or capacity requirements, and then uh, the the last is the energy only model that that was used in in Texas. And so I think what we want to do in this paper is is say, you know, capacity markets are actually kind of a narrow way of thinking about the the, the broader challenge of trying to share risk and facilitate efficient risk sharing between the demand side of the market and uh, and generators. Uh, suppliers of energy, and so uh, we don't have to limit ourselves to to capacity markets as as instantiated today, um, but but rather we should think about a broad spectrum of of, uh, of risk sharing, and um, and and then the paper thinks about you know how does the design of that uh, those mechanisms for risk sharing affect which generators are able to participate and which companies are able to. Uh, uh, to you know, muster the the financial wherewithal to to actually commit to uh, a, a capacity obligation. So that's kind of the, what we're trying to do in this paper. Question about that last, just the last sentence: commit to a capacity obligation or commit to a resource adequacy obligation? Uh, it's an important clarification. You got me. So it's uh, yes, yeah, so a resource adequacy obligation. So uh, you know, generically. If you're a supplier of power, you agree to a contract that you're able to deliver a certain uh, uh, certain uh, uh, shape of power or or whatever it is. Um, uh, how do we know that you're actually going to be able to follow through and deliver on that? And in the paper, you talk about the contractual mechanisms and thinking about the uh, the sale of the service almost like an, an option contract where you're you're providing an option for energy during the times of scarcity is kind of I think how you described it before. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that works and like I don't know making sure you aren't also getting the scarcity pricing or should we be getting scarcity pricing even if we're sharing, selling in the option contract? Can you unpack that for me as someone who is not as smart as you? Yeah, so it's it's a so in in some sense that the premise of capacity markets or like the the reason why consumers should be interested in buying capacity in the first place is because we think the the, the revenues in the energy only market or the energy market won't be enough to sustain an efficient level of reliability so um if 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 the if the scarcity prices were high enough then there wouldn't really be any justification for uh, a capacity payment because uh, there, you know, generators should be, be uh, should be getting paid enough to uh, to support uh, their operation. So, so the missing a, money problem, right? That's a, that's so a, this is the missing money industry. problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the kind of the the theoretical justification for having a capacity market is that there's not enough revenue available in the uh, in the in the energy market. So I think you can make it a somewhat separate justification. Uh, 
which we kind of do in this in this paper is to say even if you solve that problem even if you have enough money in the energy market uh to support an efficient level of the reliability in, in principle uh it's not clear that generators are going to make that bet it, and this is kind of what we talked about last time where this is a really highly volatile product the the, the prices are really volatile in, in in an energy only market and so it's not clear that investors are going to uh you know put their money down and and build generators on the basis of uh, that that volatility, and so there's a there's an argument to be made that we should try to uh, uh, you know suppress or uh, shift or somehow corral the volatility uh, just as a matter of uh, uh, making the market function a little bit better, and that's a little bit where the 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 the, the mandatory contracting idea of the paper comes in is that uh, there there needs to be some sort of mechanism to facilitate risk sharing between the the loads and the and the generators and um and so capacity markets are one way of doing that where we say we'll suppress the energy prices force the loads to buy something and then that gives a little bit more security to the generators uh to 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 make their investment um uh, and then and then you facilitated a little bit of risk sharing uh in the form of the capacity market and is that risk sharing like a reduction for for load uh, load responsible for load serving entities. It's a reduction of your risk of scarcity pricing, um, and spreading that what revenue you would get out of scarcity pricing, just spreading that over uh, a longer time period, over a, a contract period. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Am I thinking of it right? Yeah, yeah. So from the load perspective, and in a financial market sense, it's it's like kind of buying an option where you uh, you 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 have the right to power at. Uh, with a capped price, so the energy price is never going to go above some uh, some capped price, and then, um, uh, but you but you still you still know you're going to be able to to get power, so you're not going to uh, you're or if, if everything goes according to the design of the capacity market, you're not going to be uh, involuntarily curtailed, so you won't you won't be subject to the the rolling blackouts. I wanted to follow up. Sorry, Matt. Uh, I, I I just keep going. One of the areas you talk about in the paper is lessons learned from the European crisis and and that even if you have these com, uh, capacity mechanisms, they may not offer the protections to consumers that you really want if you have uh, like missing markets for the risk sharing. Can you talk a little bit about that lesson? And, and I miss I fumbled uh, that actual lesson. Uh, can you kind of describe what lessons we've we learn on these mark capacity market mechanisms from what's going on in Europe? Yeah. So, so one of the kind of interesting ways in which capacity markets are not like a financial contract and not like an option is that there's actually no financial position attached to it. So, typically with a, a capacity market, you have an obligation to offer into the the day ahead and real time markets and like in the Eastern ISOs. Uh, but there's no specification on you have to offer at a particular value. So we're not telling the combined cycle plants you have to offer at uh, $50 a megawatt hour or $80 a megawatt hour. We're saying you just have to offer. So uh, what that means is that load is still exposed to increases in the price of natural gas. So uh, uh, in the case of Europe, when natural gas increased in you know by a factor of 10 or something like that, um uh, they're having any having capacity didn't really help them uh because the there's no really financially binding aspect to the the offers that had been made um so the spot prices went through the roof 
Um, so I think if if you believe that uh, you know consumers are are and, and retailers are uh, are fully capable of hedging by themselves and signing long term contracts, uh, uh, then that's fine. But I think the the fact that uh, first off, I'm not sure anybody foresaw a price increase of this magnitude. And then second, there's so much capacity for political influence and saying, here, we're going to claw back these windfall profits, or we're going to intervene, or Uniper is going to declare bankruptcy, or EDF is going to declare bankruptcy and discharge their their uh, their contracted uh, obligations. There's so much room for that to just be messed up that it, it, it's not much of a... Uh, it's, it doesn't provide that much security. So I think you know how that plays out for end-use customers in Europe is that depending on the structure of their retail market and how thoroughly they're hedged, um, they can see really substantial increases in cost in, in a very short uh, span of time, which is just you know a political non-starter, which then flows back into the the viability of the uh, the, the market regime, which is why. Uh, you know, political leaders across Europe are saying we need to end electricity markets and and, and go back to uh, to something completely different. Um, and I don't know where they're going with that because I don't think they've completely theorized that. But um, uh, the the upshot of it is that we shouldn't expect the normal hedging operations to work well in a situation like that. I have one last question. Um, I think I'm taking you back a little bit to your opening statement, though, um, about the difference between. Um, resource adequacy and capacity than what happened with winter Uri uh, in Texas. Do you, and you mentioned that it's a, it's wrong to say that that was not a market design issue. Do you, do you think that a, a change in market design would have prevented um, the, the, the outcome that, that happened during winter Uri? Like a market design change itself was sufficient? Um, I don't, I think probably not. And so it's a it's a I think it's a complicated question because I think uh, you know obviously we've had this debate on you know would a capacity market have helped uh, and I think the um, probably the answer is if we had a capacity market that was designed the same way as PJM's or ISO New England's uh, it probably wouldn't have helped and the reason why is because the performance penalties or the non-performance penalties in those capacity markets is, is very light. So it's it's much lighter than the direct incentive provided by the energy-only market where they said, you know, if you can produce energy at this time, we'll give you $9,000 a megawatt hour. So that's a strong incentive, but obviously it wasn't enough to, uh, to, to, to solve the problem. So if you if you translate that to PJM, where the penalties are something like 3,000 in the range of 3,000, um, and then the prices are are also would also be in the two or three thousand dollar range in that type of event. Uh, that's actually a weaker incentive. So you have to uh, uh, you have to make a different argument about uh, about the risk and the, the and the the fact that the generators are paying a penalty instead of just losing out on on high prices, and uh, and, and 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 that's a different sort of argument. Um, so maybe I should uh, just kind of elaborate on on the the resource adequacy versus capacity uh, uh, bit because I think one of the when when I said that the energy only market purports to solve the resource adequacy problem is with a capacity market typically there's a lot of uh, thought that goes into here's the particular event that we're trying to 
plan for. So there's a summer peak event. We're planning to that peak, uh, or maybe it's a peak net load, but there's a couple days in August that we're worried about, and we're kind of planning to that. And with the energy-only market design, it's completely agnostic to what the event is. So if it's a winter storm, if it's a summer uh, 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 you know, hot day, if it's for some reason randomly in May, there's no wind and things uh, things get into, uh, into trouble, uh, the energy-only design is agnostic to that because it will just put the prices at prices at $9,000 and leave it to the market participants to, to place their bets on which of those is going to be the most important. Whereas the capacity market has a little bit more top-down uh, 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 architecture in terms of this is the particular thing that we're we're trying to plan for. Got it. With respect to um, uh, your early your earlier point about bankruptcies, um, I, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts. Uh, uh, is there a penalty or a non-performance penalty high enough with the existence of the bankruptcy hedge to force performance um, in times of actual scarcity? And if not, how do we solve that problem? Yeah, I think this is a um, this is a really tough one because I, I'm not sure that any existing structure really handles that because, like you said, you know, uh, given how extraordinarily valuable electricity is uh, and electric reliability is, the you would need to set a really high price to to get the theoretically correct incentive to do that, and that pushes you into the into the problem of uh, bankruptcy and uh, and tail risk, and uh, and so then the the stronger you try to get in terms of people posting collateral and, and performance bonds to to avoid the problem of bankruptcy, the more you foreclose on new comp uh, new competition and and get into market power concerns. So I think that uh, this is a, a little bit of a rock and hard place type of situation um, that uh, I, I I wish I had a better answer for now, but you know hopefully in a couple of years I'll I'll be able to <laughs> give you something a little bit better. Well, I think the um, I think the real question is why it wouldn't end with uh, basically a, re a a return to pre deregulation, um, mm -hmm. where you know every retail utility um, was incentivized to own uh, more than the generation that they needed uh, in order to serve their peak load, in order to avoid that scarcity pricing and avoid the capacity um, penalties or or even you know, organized capacity market costs, as we see in PJM, um, um, altogether. Yeah, right. And so I think that's, uh, you know, one potential conclusion that you could, you could argue for is that, you know, there's no way around socializing it somehow. And so, uh, we, we ought to socialize that, uh, that risk, um, and try to do it in an intelligent way. Um, I think, you know, another route is, is the type of, uh, uh, stuff that they they talked about doing after the 2008 financial crisis where you have uh, a little bit uh you know a, a smarter design in terms of the central counterparty uh, uh, uh there in place to manage systemic risk and try to try to handle this um but uh but i i i i don't I, I'm interested in pursuing that idea, but I don't think it's like on the table, so to speak, in, in the conversations I've seen. 
Well, I want to pivot this conversation to talk about what's going on in the West and an application of a new development of a Western resource adequacy program. So up next, Almaz, do you want to, you want to tee off that question? All right, let's do it. There has been an industry-led development of a resource adequacy program in the West organized by the Western Power Pool. In the paper, you discuss near-complete markets as an example of the least interventionist approach used by the Australia's retailer reliability obligation. You describe an enhanced version of the model used by Australia, which would have a requirement for retailers to hold contracts sufficient to serve their load all the time without specifying the particular form of the contract. Um, and there seems to be uh, an analog to your enhanced version of Australia's retail reliability obligation in the Western Resource Adequacy Program. The West Adequacy Program relies on de decentralized contract subject to a centralized determination of the quality of different contracts and the total that must be held. So the question, um, <laughs> this probably could have gone in the unfair question because it's it's not really a question, but uh, would you say that the Western Resource Adequacy Program is a great resource adequacy program or the greatest resource adequacy program? No option for, for any other answers, A or B. <laughs> it's a right, trap. So, um well, well, I guess here's how I would think about it, and and not being privy to the the, the details of the conversations, uh, I, I think that the you know one big question with any resource adequacy program is what happens when something goes wrong, and so what are the penalties for non-performance, and are those strong enough to really. Uh, you know, be painful for the for the people that are that are providing capacity or providing resource adequacy. I'm sorry, I did it again. <laughs> um, um, and, and so I, I think you know, in uh, in in the organized wholesale markets, it's kind of easy to uh, to go through the tariff language and figure out all right, this is going to be the penalty. And um, and uh, and well, I, I shouldn't say it's easy because there's there's lots of ways that generators can get out of it and stuff like that, but. Uh, but it's a little bit more straightforward, at least for 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 me as an outsider to to look in and try to figure out you know what those penalties look like. And so I guess uh, one question um, that that would influence how great uh, the the Western Resource Adequacy uh, Program is 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 how those penalties are are calibrated. So I think the uh, uh, the flip side of penalties is if you if you don't have strong enough penalties, you have to be really good at accrediting the resources to okay. to try to figure out in advance. Hey, these these are not going to fail, or at least statistically, they're not going to fail, and so we'll be fine, and we won't have too many instances where things are going so wrong that that we need to worry about the penalties. And uh, and so then it becomes a, a question of you know how good are your models and and how. Uh, how how smart do you think you've been about the future of uh, drought potential and the Colorado River Basin and the and the and the Pacific Northwest and uh, and the way that that will influence the the the, the hydro contribution and, and things like that that are kind of difficult statistical and, uh, and and modeling challenges? Would you say you're optimistic about the Western Resource Adequacy Program? I, uh, well, since I, I, I think uh, 10 minutes ago, I was, I was talking about the, how uh, everything was irresolvable and, uh, 
and, uh, and we have tremendous reliability challenges. So I guess um, I think this is probably a positive development because, uh, you know, it's clearly in the West uh, and clearly in the context of moving to, to, to more wind and solar and, and uh, decarbonizing, uh, sharing across the footprint is is essential and and so trying to be smarter about resource adequacy on a regional level is is i think a, a cer- certainly a development to be optimistic about um i think i hesitate to be optimistic about whether it will actually guarantee reliability because of those issues with you know are the penalties big enough and are we really smart enough at, at getting all the uh uh, the hydrological modeling and the statistical modeling and the and then the, the weather modeling, right? Time, time will tell. Time will tell, or the weather well, as well. Or the weather will tell. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious on the how the mechanisms for pricing to make sure the penalties are high enough. So, what in your mind are the right ways to like structure a penalty pricing scheme um, so that they are structured to be high enough. So I think, man, I should know better. And we're going to have Sarah Edmonds on the CEO of the Western Power Pool uh, next episode to talk a little bit more about this, but, and she'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe like we have this forward showing penalty where if you don't show and based on the metrics that you have enough, it's like a two X cone. So a cost of new entrance time two penalty, you know, down to a monthly value, that kind of thing. So you have penalties for not showing up you know, as calculated, but then in the operations program, and remember this isn't a market, it's just a program in the operations program. If you're called on, you then have a penalty that's a multiple of the, you know, index values, the the market traded values. Um, And that seems like a decent way to make sure your penalties are high enough, but that schema, do you have thoughts on a pricing schema to make sure it gives enough or or not? And could I, could I build on that a little bit and either, either forces, you know, an an appropriate schema to either um, uh, guarantee performance to the extent it's possible, recognizing stuff happens um, or to incentivize new development as necessary. Yeah, I I think, um, well, I, I don't know. And, and so I, uh, in terms of the, the, the question of how, how it's actually worked, how, what the index is and what the multipliers are and whether that's right. Uh, you know, I think that there's, uh, there's, you know, some efforts in the academic literature to try to assess the value of loss load and try to model out, you know, what, what people should be willing to pay. And, and, and in theory, you can tie that to the the penalty value because, in the in the case of actual rolling blackouts, then you want to be charging generators at least that much. Um, whether we can get you know a really defensible value for what that value of lost load is is um, is is tough. My feeling is that because of the bankruptcy constraint that I that I mentioned earlier, uh, no politically possible or, or no no practically possible value will would be high enough <laughs> compared to the value of lost load and so um uh so i think kind of the higher you can go the better is 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 my feeling on that would you call this like full strength prices and multiples of full strength prices i guess uh the <clears throat> the one thing 
that it solves for if you use the value of loss load is um, I think we talked about last time the reliability externality where you always like a utility always has just shutting off load as a hedge against high market prices. So if you're valuing on the value of loss load, you're probably insulating against that. And then the bankruptcy backstop becomes the next thing you have to worry about. I'm still processing where we are in this conversation. So uh, yeah, is that, yeah. Is that so kind I, of what I, we were doing there? Right. Well, I think one of the challenges is that the the value of loss load is such a moving target. And, uh, you know, you can do uh, the, the studies in Texas that they landed on $9,000 for, you know, pre-URI, uh, the, the value that they would use. But then when you look at what happened at the actual event and, and the consequences of having a several day long outage and you think, okay, well, there's probably actually more than that. You know the the uh, and there's a difference between having a 30 minute outage versus a, a three day outage, and there's a difference between it happening um, in April and and happening on the coldest day in in February. So um, so having that really well calibrated is 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 something that uh, is is probably pretty tough to do. Or if it happens to me or a hospital, right? And and then there's there's this other. I think we've we've seen this show up again and again where so you know TVA just had its first rolling blackout in 90 years and um this is well beyond the 1 in 10 year standard so this is uh you, you know by a by a planning standard you could say uh, you know what stuff happens uh this was that that occasion where you know they had the the the, the they had to do the rolling blackouts but um, you know, once in 90 years isn't too bad, and it's actually much stronger than the, the reliability standard. So we just kind of got to live with that. But in practice, it's a big political issue. There's there's big um, uh, there's there's going to be an investigation. There's going to be a board. There's going to be um, uh, major issues because the blackouts happened. Uh, there there ought to be obviously some some understanding of what happened and how to prevent it and how to how to improve processes. But I think it's a political issue beyond that that um, uh, would would seem to suggest that uh, you know whatever we call the value of lost load in practice at the end of the day uh, that the fact that people are going to get fired and there's going to be a big political issue whenever whenever a rolling blackout happens means that the value of lost load is is implicitly much higher than than, uh, than what you would get on a survey. I think that goes without saying. I, yeah, um, I, I agree. I've always struggled with that. Um, I, I uh, when I was back east, it was a little bit different in that I would get a list of you know various electricity suppliers that I got to choose from. Um, here in the Northwest, that's not the case. Um, we've got you know uh, effectively um, local enforced monopolies, and so I am a captive customer. Um, and if I were uh, if I were subject to, to one in 10 year rolling blackouts, I would have a real problem with that. Um, I think it comes with the territory. If you don't, if, if, if there is a, a lack of customer choice, the obligation on behalf of the supplier of something as essential as electricity, um, it needs to be, there needs to be a higher standard associated with it. There can't simply be a financial out, right? Um, if markets are too high, you don't get to turn off the power for your customers. Um, yeah. Although I would say that if you do, you want to reimburse your customers. Yeah. Which is yeah. <laughs> my mother used to a, say when I was growing up that a failure to plan on my part did not constitute an emergency on hers. Right. Uh, that's that's nice. kind of how I look at it. Nice. I did want to follow up on one thing though, because retail choice doesn't 
I don't think solve this like issue. No, I, I don't think it does but, either. I'm, the monopoly like, aspect was just another feather in the it, cap, I suppose. But yeah, right. Yeah, um, I, I think there is an issue that you don't actually get to select your desired level of reliability, which which would be another way of resolving this. If you if you said, you know what, I can. Um, there are programs for cycling air conditioners and things like that, but uh, but you can't actually say, you know, if if the prices go above nine thousand, cut me off. That's that's not a well. In, in Texas, they had retail choice, but the, that that mm-hmm. impacted the price that you paid. That did not impact whether or not you were subject to blackouts. Right. Right. Um, I want to get back a little bit to some of the other lessons from your paper. Um, One of the investigations you did, at least as I interpreted it, was trying to figure out the ways of contracting for adequacy. Um, And you investigated the Frank Wolock standardized fixed price forward contract framework. You looked at um, the like uh, mandatory contracting and mandatory offering off of different resources. Um, and one of the lessons I think I got out of it was, um, trying to have a, uh, a robust, uh, capa- or contracting frameworks where different resources can use their efficient tools for contracting to make sure things like variable resources were basically priced out of developing because they, you know, the, the price of them providing resource adequacy, if it's their obligation, um, made it unlikely that they would ultimately get developed. Can you talk a little bit about that element of the paper and the contracting, the flexibility of contracting, why that's valuable in these type of markets? Yeah. So I think the, the idea there is that, uh, with, uh, with any sort of contract between generators and, and, uh, well, anyone, but but ultimately loads. The uh, there's this question of you know uh, what form should that contract take. So with if you talk to renewables developers, the kind of the, the the ideal for them in terms of transferring risk is something like a unit contingent contract, where they say, you know, if the wind is blowing and I'm producing, I'll sell you the power at this price, and if it's not, um, then uh, I'll, I'll then then I just won't sell you anything. But there's no financial hit. Uh, but you can have variants of that where if you have a proxy generation uh, contract, then you might be uh, the 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 generator might hold some some operating risk where if they have a mechanical failure that's causing them to generate as opposed to lack of wind, they still bear some risk there. Uh, or if they're selling a fixed shape where they say, you know, historically, we kind of know what wind will produce on average, so we'll sell you that shape then they still have a bunch of shape risk where they might not be able to match the output that they've sold you. And uh, so one of the problems is um, uh, generators in general ought to want to sell contracts that kind of conform to the shape that they're able to, to produce right. so that they can kind of financially defend their uh, the, their position that they've contracted for. And so the the idea in those different tests is to say, uh, if you force generators with something like a capacity market to sell essentially a shape that they wouldn't naturally choose, then they're going to charge a risk premium because they're uh, they're not going to want to uh, commit to something that they can't actually uh, actually deliver on. And uh, so the the kind of the ideal the idealized case is everybody gets to choose their own shape because then they can figure out what's right for them and what's right for the customers and land on something that's that's mutually agreeable. And, um, and that's kind of the theoretically ideal case. 
But in in resource adequacy constructs, what we're what we're trying what we're basically doing is specifying a specific shape. And then the question is, how well do resources or portfolios of resources uh, conform to that shape? And um, and then who's in charge of constructing that portfolio? So, uh, can I, sorry, can okay, I do an interpretation real quick, yeah. and then you can keep going? So, really, the shape we're asking them to conform to is load shape, right? So, how good is your resource in matching the shape of the load that we're trying to serve? Is that the shape? I mean, that's yeah. ultimately what we're trying to do with the portfolio, right? And so, sure and so, there's a couple, this. and there's a couple ways of doing that. If you have, if you have retailers, if you have competitive retailers, then ultimately their job is to try to figure out what their customer's shape is going to be, uh, to do some predictions, do some procurement uh, for enough power to try to match that shape, and then. Um, and then have the risk that they'll get it slightly wrong and have to have to do the balancing in the spot market. Um, with something like the the Frank Woolock proposal, the standardized fixed price forward contract that that uh, you mentioned earlier, um, that uh, the, the retailer's problem is solved because they def uh, he defines a contract where we'll say, hey, we'll just figure out the shape of this contract ex post. So we'll see what people ex post meaning after the fact. So we'll see. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll you know we'll see what the loads actually consumed. Uh, we'll define the the shape of the contract that way, and then go back to the generators or the portfolios of generators and say, did you manage to to hit that? Did you manage to meet that the the load requirement? And if not, you have to buy uh, at spot prices to to balance the uh, the the energy that you didn't deliver. So what that in effect does is that the retailer's problem is solved from a risk management perspective because they've bought this contract that, that mostly covers them. Um, it doesn't 100% cover them, but it, it mostly covers them. And then the problem is on the, the supplier's side, how do they get a portfolio of generators that's that's capable of, of, of meeting that shape and also meeting that price? So the fact that you've sold forward at a certain price means that uh, you uh, you need some resources that you don't want to be so exposed to gas prices that you can't uh, you can't meet your uh, meet your obligation uh, in terms of the price, but you don't want to be exposed to uh, renewables variability so much that you can't meet your shape. So then you need some combination of renewables and storage and hydro and um, uh, potentially gas and you know whatever it is. Uh, depending on your your renewables targets or your your uh, carbon free targets, uh, that's going to allow you to meet the shape, regardless of what the shape ends up being. Uh, but then, uh, but then also uh, stay within the price that you've agreed to. In the paper, you ran some numerical experiments, is what I uh, read. Mm -hmm. the, is that the term for it? Um, to try to figure out. Um, how that type of construct would compare to some more diverse contracting mechanisms, I think, where where you could have broader participations and not just that same contract. Can you talk about the the portfolio approach where different uh, generators can contract naturally and, and why that may be a better outcome uh, for load in at least your, the tests you ran, the, the why there? Yeah, well, I think, th so this is kind of like a, a just an outgrowth of 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 optimization models is that the more constraints you put on uh 
the, the, the worse the outcome is going to be. And the more freedom you give it, the, the better the outcome is going to be. And the, the, the corollary is that, you know, the more freedom you give to market participants to figure out what's going to work for them, the, the, the better in principle, the, uh, the, the outcome is going to be. Um, so I think like the, the, in, in a sense, the fact that we have a resource adequacy program at all is, is indicative of, of the, of the fact that we don't completely trust that. So we're not going to, uh, we're not going to completely leave it up to market participants. So we're going to have some intervention. Uh, and then the, and then the question becomes, how do we, how do we do that in a way that is going to solve what we're worried about, but then uh, still leave enough freedom for, for people to do uh, uh, what they, what's going to work the best for them. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that just be uh ERCOT with no price cap? Uh, no, I don't think that'll work because I, I think, um, uh, I think the 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 frictions and contracting and the and the transaction costs and the asymmetric information and uh, and the bankruptcy risk and cre- counterparty credit risk is uh, gets in the way of that and uh, and then and then becomes a reliability issue. So, like ERCOT without price caps would may help resolve the incomplete market missing money problem, maybe. But you still have the incomplete markets and risk, right? As you right. may find it, there's like these two parts issues. So. Uh, an energy only market like Australia or ERCOT without price caps may help resolve the missing money problem, but it wouldn't, you're speaking to the missing, the incomplete markets and risk. Right. right? right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get it back to the Western resource adequacy program because one of the, one of, I'll just pitch it as the greatest or I'll just, it's, I think it's a really well structured because one of the things it's doing is not putting constraints on those contract frameworks for how load responsible entities go procure their adequate portfolio, right? So it's uh, it's not a mandatory contract type. It's we have a framework for how to how to credit the across the types, and then a penalty structure. But how you fill that as a load responsible entity is up to the load responsible entity. So you have these degrees of freedom for different resources mm-hmm. types. Why would you like the pitch? You like the pitch? Is that a good way to do it? Yeah, I like the pitch, and I think it comes back to to what I was saying earlier on. You know, what happens if something goes wrong? What are the penalties? And then, how good are you are you at, at at evaluating the 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 value of the different contracts? Okay, well, those are I I like. And now I have a mental model of the two tests I need to to use on I, my resource markets. Go ahead, Amos. I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, of those two, um, I guess risks that we have to look out for, which one? Um, is the greatest risk? Is it um, not getting those capacity accreditations right or um, the penalties not being severe enough? Which one of those stands to be the greatest risk for us? Well, I guess it, it seems to me like it's, it is a little bit of an either or where the, the stronger the penalties are, the, the less uh, reliant you need to be on the accreditation because the, the companies themselves should be uh, well incentivized to to make sure they're they're only committing to something they can deliver. Um, the weaker the penalties are, the the more uh, you know weight is pressed on the or the weight is placed on the administrative evaluation. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about those two. Actually, okay. Well, we we touched a little bit 
on restructuring back to a structured uh, framework for electric utilities um, and wholesale contracting. So maybe that's a good segue into the next topic. Take it away, Matt. Recent New York Times article titled, Why Are Energy Prices So High? Some Experts Blame Deregulation made the rounds on energy Twitter to start the new year. Uh, In the piece, uh, the author Ivan Penn frames the topic as the subject of, quote unquote, intense debate among academic, uh, excuse me, academics, analysts, regulators, and utility industry executives, with some arguing that the regional approaches to electricity are essential to fighting climate change by, quote, making it easier for lots of companies to build wind and solar farms and connect them to the grid. I don't like that part. Um, I took I took particular issue with that part. Um, I, I I'd like I'd like to hear um, Jacob's thoughts on interregional transmission planning with respect to decarbonization, frankly, and why that is so much better um, than what we talked about earlier with respect to the the monopoly approach. The idea that overlapping utility service territories or uh, RTO, ISO, etc. Um, are going to do better um, when they are planning. Uh, or, or employing centralized planning, I think I should say. Yeah, so I guess that I, I think that um, well, kind of starting with the 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 New York Times piece, one of the big uh, issues is is defining what deregulation means, or you know, I think as, yeah. as many, you know, obviously many people have said you know we shouldn't call it deregulation; this is just a different form of regulation. But I think the one of the big problems is that there's really uh, three main components of restructuring that are uh, a little bit orthogonal to each other. One is having a transmission system operator that is independent of the transmission owners. And, um, and this is what allows regionalization and uh, an efficient dispatch across, across large areas. And I think the academic literature on that is kind of a slam dunk. Like it is very clear that that's provided operational benefits um, and, and reduced costs in, in operating. Uh, second component of restructuring is separating generation ownership from transmission ownership. And I think that um, there's really no, no clear evidence either way. There's some, uh, you know, there's certainly some theoretical reasons why you want to separate them. Um, but empirically, uh, not you know, it's not obvious that that uh, that has uh, um, provided a, or made a big difference either way. And then, and then, retail competition is the kind of the third aspect of, of restructuring, where um, you know, not, first off, no no state has really accomplished it apart from Texas, and and so I, I'm not sure you could find any academic who would say it's been a, a slam, it's been a real success. And, uh, um, and so it's, it's, there's no real, uh, real answer there. Um, so I, I think that the, the, you know, the, the, one of the interesting findings that is, uh, you know, we're 20 ish years after restructuring and more or less you, you, there, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference in retail rates and the, the way retail rates have changed between the, 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 different states depending on the uh the different routes they took at that time 
Um, there's, you know, very clear impacts on prices that come from natural gas and the the various uh, the varying dependence on natural gas that the different regions have. And then there's very clear on impacts from state policy. So California has really high rates uh, because of the the state policies they've pursued. Uh, the Northeast has pretty high rates. Um, uh, tied with uh, the the uh, you know being disconnected from the the pipeline system or being really loosely connected from the pipeline system, um, but those are probably stronger factors than uh, than than the restructuring, and uh, it's a little bit unsatisfying. But uh, <laughs> it's, it seems like we we went through all this effort and, and the retail rates, you know, it didn't have a major impact. Major impact. <laughs> Um, We're talk Northeast. Should we go, get into the Jones Act, or is that a little? <laughs> is the Jones? <laughs> I didn't know the Jones Act was on the table. But I think I think you know, coming back to your 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 point at the end of the question, you know, uh, if we want to run this uh, run a system on lots of solar and wind, the regionalization is is uh, the efficiencies from that are 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 even larger, and so uh, transmission planning and operations being done over larger geographic regions. Um, like I said, that's the one where, where from the academic literature, it's a slam dunk, and it seems like that uh, the benefits from that grow with uh, with increasing uh, solar and wind. So if I'm like underscoring this, the Northwest is looking at you know moving from a bilateral market to a centrally dispatched organized market, and if I'm underscoring your point there, that would be the first category you talked about, which was quote unquote. A slam dunk. Is that my am I interpreting you right? That's this. That's the restructuring from the academic literature. That's a slam dunk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can you can uh, you can quote me on saying regional <laughs> regional planning and dispatch. Uh, it's 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 the way to go. So we just second, found our episode title. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Before the slam dunk is that including the issue the, the the whole capacity missing money issues like that going from bilateral to to a centralized market is a slam dunk even given the issues with capacity markets. Yeah. So I, th- I think that um, the I, you know I actually think of the capacity markets as one of the reasons why the um, the 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 wholesale savings have not flowed into the the retail rates um if you look at you know pjm it's it's seems very clear to me that that customers in pjm have overpaid in the capacity market for the last uh, uh you know 16 years since rpm was introduced um and so despite the, the despite the efficiencies in in operations um there's this kind of you know uh, overpayment uh, baked in uh through the capacity market so um uh, so I think uh, you know operationally, it's still uh, it, it's still a benefit, and the still the the, the costs are are overall uh, you know lower to operate the system, um, and I think that will grow with more more wind and solar. Um, but then you know uh, the the effect on retail rates is, is somewhat muted. Right. Need to balance the carrot and the stick, in other words, to keep with the baseball metaphor. Is that a baseball metaphor? I don't know. I was envisioning a baseball bat when I said <laughs> stick. So for my brain, okay. it was. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that's all the scripted topics we have this week. But we have a new segment I'm calling Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week because she's been asking our guests some 
great questions. She was calling them unfair, but -hmm. really they just turned out to be incredibly insightful if unfiltered and unscripted. So take it away, Almaz, your insightful question of the week. I think it it dovetails perfectly um, with this last topic. Is it fair to say, um, Jacob, that you are pro-markets? Oh, that is... uh... That is unfair. That, by, I, by uh, way, that's not even the question, but I wanted to premise it. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and start with that one. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fair to say that I I uh, have a a market orientation. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think I I I, I uh, as as came out out earlier, I'm I'm pro- I'm kind of pretty aware of the limits of of, of markets, and I kind of. Um, view markets as a tool to get the regulatory ends that we're that we're aiming for, rather than a good in and of themselves. Um, so maybe that's one distinction. Okay. Um, well, so just to put it out there, I wouldn't call myself anti-markets, but I would not say that I fall into the category of pro-markets. Um, and I also don't believe. Uh, so, like when when Matt asked the question um, previously, and he just mentioned, you know, what's the to stop utilities from reverting back to pre-deregulation behavior, right? I, my ears popped up because um, I, I have that that same question as well. But but for me, um, I feel like the, the 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 whole reason why restructuring is uh, is promoted is because it's believed to lower costs. That's that's like the fundamental. We want to have markets and everything because we want to increase efficiencies and and lower costs. That's that's what competition is supposed to do. Um, but I I wonder if that is what our objective should be in supplying something as uh, essential as electricity. If lower costs really is what we should be going for, but. That's another topic for another day. My question to you is, um, so it, it, if you have like full markets or something so like we have with the, uh, the the RAP, which is kind of what you call the near complete, I think is what you, you refer to that type of a program, between those two uh, types of structures, which one do you think um, is most likely to result in A, lower costs for consumers, uh, and B, which one is most likely to justly allocate costs uh, across a broad region? Um, I, I guess that uh, either could uh, could work and could can turn out with better options. I think I um, my bias is probably toward the, the more market-oriented uh, approach, but... Um, uh, so you believe it would have, the, it would produce the lowest costs for consumers, the market-based approach? Well, well, one, I guess one, uh, one, uh, nuance here is I as I think that the 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 wrap approach isn't it's still a market there's still you know you can still procure from independent power producers you can still trade between different entities there's still market aspects there it's and not so centralized it's not centralized and so then the question is you know how uh, uh, how 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 much efficiency do you get from centralization and reducing transaction costs and and, and whatnot. Um, and uh, uh, versus leaving flexibility and uh, and um, you know, room for innovation and comp- more competition and things like that. And uh, uh, I guess I I uh, I'm, I might not be entirely understanding all the trade offs, but I, I tend to lean toward the, the the market approach. And so that was so that's 
for the the lower cost. But the second part was which one would um, more justly allocate costs. Yeah. So I guess that um, there's there's two levels here. One is uh, to justly allocating costs across retail customers within a specific state or utility territory, which I think the the wholesale market should be indifferent to that because it's it it, it ought to be a, a state regulatory uh, decision about the, the 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 retail tariff design. Uh, the allocation of costs between different states and between different uh, service territories is a little bit trickier. I, I'm getting into you know really speculative territory here, so I don't know. I, I guess I'll just stick with I don't know and say uh, a lot would depend on the state regulatory commissions. <laughs> fair, fair enough. That's why I call it an unfair question. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, thank you, Jacob, for for that. Um, I'm. I'm curious to see where the Northwest or where the West goes. Um, I don't, I actually don't believe necessarily that um, restructuring and going to a centralized market is going to be a slam dunk for us. I think we're going to lose a little bit um, uh, in that process. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll have the wrong objectives. But anyway, that it, again, this is one of those time will tell. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Omaz, and sorry, thank Paul. you. Oh, that was great. No, don't apologize for being awesome. <laughs> unfair is right in the name. You're supposed to. Right. The question's supposed Here to be unfair. Uh, well, we're going to move on to our next segment where we talk, uh, where we close out the episode with a rundown of news stories we didn't get to in our TLDR segment we're calling Short to Ground. But first, a uh, word from our sponsor. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Almaz. And we're, and we're shorting, shorting to ground. To The Northwest needs to double its operating reserves to ensure it maintains resource adequacy during bad weather years, winter storms, and other events that can push the grid to its breaking point, according to the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's last resource adequacy assessment. Find more coverage about the council's latest assessment by Dan Catchpole on Clearing Up. Utilities, state water managers, and numerous agencies welcomed a pause in the conveyor belt of atmospheric rivers that has been pummeling the West Coast. The January 12th lull gave much-needed time to regroup before more storms reach landfall as forecast. The storms left tens of thousands of utility customers without electricity, more than 20,000 people were evacuated, and dam operators were releasing water to help prevent flooding. Linda Daly-Paulson has coverage of the topic in California energy markets. 
Sorry. Meanwhile, New York Times this morning headline, the drought hasn't ended. Everybody's talking about how it still hasn't solved the problem so far as California is concerned, which I no, think is interesting. Still, still drought conditions, but we're getting lots of rain. All right. Compared to two years ago, the abundance of Lower Columbia River coho adults improved to the making progress category of recovery, while Snake River steelhead adults dropped to the not keeping pace in Washington's 2022 State of the Salmon and Watersheds report. The other 12 species of Washington State salmonoids listed under the Endangered Species Act have not changed abundance categories since the state's 2020 State of the Salmon report, according to a presentation on on the report being completed by the governor's Salmon Recovery Office. Follow Clearing Up for more coverage by KC Mahaffey. Retail customers on time-of-use rates are sticking with the program, and those with electric vehicles are significantly reducing demand at peak usage times, especially in hotter areas, investor-owned utilities told the California Public Utilities Commission this week. Leslie Willoughby, electric load and analyst Analysis manager for San Diego Gas and Electric said the utility saw a significant increase in customers switching EV charging to the super off-peak window and a concurrent decrease in charging during regular off-peak hours. You can find more coverage by Ann Ernst in California Energy Markets. Pacific Gas and Electric and Swiss company Energy Vault on January 5th announced a partnership to build and operate a utility-scale battery plus green hydrogen long-duration energy storage system in Calistoga, California. The facility with a minimum of 293 megawatt hours of dispatchable carbon-free energy is touted as the largest green hydrogen microgrid project in the United States. The proposal integrates a short-duration battery system for grid-forming and black star capabilities with long-duration fuel cells plus a green hydrogen storage system. For more, check out coverage by Yolanda Bluxom in California Energy Markets. The Eugene Water and Electric Board approved a resolution on January 3rd directing its general manager to develop a plan to decommission the Lieberg hydroelectric project, according to a news release from the board. The project, which produced 11 average megawatts, was shut down in 2018 due to a seismically vulnerable due to seismically vulnerable soils and erosion in parts of the Lieberg Canal. For more, check out Casey Mahaffey's coverage in Clearing Up, or we can ask Matt because um, he used to work at EWEB. See what you have to say about it. No comment. <laughs> okay. Carnegie Mellon University, in collaboration with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, has supported research by Dr. Destiny Knopp, my favorite, to develop a national energy planning assessment model or a people impact assessment model that can identify how different power plant retirements will impact power emission distributions across the entire U.S., which can then be connected to local impacts. A link to a paper discussing the work co-authored by Tegan Goforth and Destiny Knopp is in the show notes, along with a short YouTube video highlighting the research. We you have to we get, can get We you have. You think to. we can? You think we can, Jacob? Uh, uh, Professor Mays, do you know her? Can you get us in touch? Make it. I know her. A, yeah, you should. You should totally have her on. Okay, so I, I think those are both awesome. phenomenal names, by the way. Destiny Knopp and Tegan Goforth. That's great. Yeah. Also, right. great work. You know, great I don't even know what it's about. Work. I want to read that. You should. It was a great YouTube video. I watched it. Texas utility regulators plan to vote next week on whether to recommend the state 
adopt a controversial controversial performance credit mechanism designed to ensure grid reliability during periods of low non-dispatchable power. The PCM has been criticized for its complexity, among other factors, and observers say it could take years to implement. Utility Dyes has, have, has coverage of the topic by Robert Walton. Really excited to hear if you have any comments, Professor Mays, uh, when we finish this out. I mean, I, I my career is about writing papers about obscure resource adequacy mechanisms. So this is this is great for me. Um, Rachel Dibble has been named the vice president of bulk marketing at the Bonneville Power Administration, effective January fifteenth, a position she held on an interim basis for the past year. She will oversee BPA's power trading floor, scheduling, pricing, market analysis, long-term surplus sales, and purchases and associated contract support and, transa and transaction settlement functions. Dibble has served in several management positions across the agency since joining BPA in 2008. Coverage of the news is in the brief mentions, news roundup section of Clearing Up. Form Energy, an iron air rechargeable battery startup, is building a new factory in Weirton, West Virginia. The $760 million project will occupy 55 acres of property and is planned to begin commercial operation in 2024. I think I messed project and property. I confused them as I was reading them, but you get the point. It's 55 acres, $750 million. The reverse rusting process used by Form Energy was developed by a team of researchers at MIT, and current estimates indicate the iron air batteries could cost a tenth of the cost of lithium ion batteries. One article quotes an estimate of $20 per kilowatt hour of capacity. For more, we found the topic on Energy Twitter. We'll share the tweet in the show notes. And thanks to Matthew Shretnik for passing it along. Hey, Matt, isn't Portland General also um, working with Form Energy as well? Or am I thinking about somebody else? I thought there was somebody in the Northwest with this uh, in the works as well. A former Portland General executive went to work at Form Energy. Well, there's that. Maybe, well, there's maybe that. we can yeah. get her on. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm, I'll have to rethink about that. Um, spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today, January 20th, is at $169 per megawatt hour with Northwest gas at $14.53 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $67.26 and a heat rate of 11,600. Spot power in the Southwest is at $125.25. Southern California at $133.72 and Northern California at $140.44. February gas at Henry Hub is at $3.28 per MMBTU. Talk about price separation. Yeah. U.S. natural gas consumption reaches daily reached its daily record high in December of 2022. While consumption of natural gas has surged, production fell rapidly, creating an imbalance that led to large withdrawals from storage and increased natural gas pipeline imports from Canada. Dry natural gas production in the lower 48 sta states fell from 98.6 BCF on December 20 on December 21st to a low of 82.5 BCF on December 24th, a decline of 16.3%. Natural gas prices remain elevated in the West. Both West Coast uh, Energy and Gas Transmission Northwest, pipelines that deliver natural gas into the Pacific Northwest from Canada at Sumas and Kingsgate, Idaho, respectively, reported curtailments on their system. 
This week in NOAA climate forecasts, the six to 10 day outlook has below normal temperatures and below normal precipitation for the majority of the West. A new 90 day outlook was issued on January 19th. It is showing below normal temperatures and above normal precipitation for the Northern latitudes and above normal temperatures and below normal precipitation for the Southern portion of the West. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecast, October through September flows at the Dallas for water year 2023 are currently forecast to be 78% of normal. That is below normal. That's 78% of normal. And April through September is at 82%. The ending elevation at Grand Coulee for January 19th was 1,281 feet, a two-foot draw since January 8th recording. That's it for our TLDR segment. We may have to figure out how to make it shorter in the future. There's so many great articles to cover, though. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find the complete stories in California energy markets and clearing up. Let's close it out, uh, Amaz. That's short to ground. ground. I'll start with you, Professor Mays. Anything in there you wanted to talk about? Uh, Well, um, well, I should, you know, double down on the recommendation to talk to Destiny. She's uh, she's been crushing it, and um, uh, lots lots of great great things to talk about uh from from her group um I, I suppose with the the performance capacity mechanism i was kind of joking about it earlier but the um i think the you know the it, it, getting back to the very beginning of the show it's trying to solve the capacity problem it's trying to it's trying to uh well i, I that's that's a little bit unfair it's it's trying to <clears throat> try trying to address the wrong problem uh, in the sense that it's it's sending more money to generators, but it's not facilitating risk sharing. It's not trying to um, uh, uh, to to manage that, and it's also actually weakening the incentive to perform relative to full strength energy only market prices. And um, and so I I think directionally it's it's the wrong way to go. Um, and. Uh, so when I had Professor Wolock on, he compared some of these mechanisms to uh, tenure at, for a professor. So where you're just getting paid to show up but not necessarily <laughs> teach anything. Is that what they're doing in Texas? They're tenuring uh, you know, their it's, it's generators? Not, it's not quite like that because they, it is attached to performance in critical times. But the problem is um, if you spread what you define as a critical time too thin, then it's not actually directing compensation to the resources that are available in, in real system stress. Okay. Um, so if you, if you, you know, in, in Texas from 20 to, from 2014 to 2018, they never reached scarcity. There was never an issue. So if you give people performance payments in those five years, even though there were no times of system stress, you end up giving payments to resources that, you know, who knows if they'd actually perform in, in a real system stress event. Uh, so the the more you concentrate the payments into, uh, you know, when you actually really critically need it, uh, the, the stronger an incentive it is uh, to, to actually perform. And, uh, and, and moving to, to something like the, the performance credit mechanism actually weakens that. Um, so, so uh, it, yeah, it's, it's not how I would do it, I'm which sorry, is Paul, all I'm... the criticism I need, right? It's not how Jacob Mays would do it. So let's not do it that way. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, if I only that you're... were enough for the PUC. 
<laughs> I know you're trying to wrap things up, but you just made me think of one one quick question. Jacob, how do you feel about demand response? Like that's essentially paying for something that, you know, it's a capacity payment. How um, do you feel about that? Well, uh, you know, this is obviously another can of worms. The, uh, the, the big... The big, the, I mean, the big problem with with demand response as implemented is establishing the counterfactual of, of you know, how much would you have consumed otherwise, and so this is another thing where I think putting things in in a in a more formal financial terms would be better because then if your demand and you've procured in advance a certain amount and then you use less than that, then you get paid the balance at the spot price, and that's. Uh, or or the contractually agreed price, and uh, and you have your con- your contracted quantity, and you have your actual consumption, and there's no need to establish a baseline. It's just uh, it's just a normal contract. So I th- I think um, that's something that would be better if it were in a more formal financial uh, uh, framework. All right, I'm going to stop. I love it. I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm not cutting any of this out. This is going to be our longest episode. If anybody gets here, uh, you get a gold star. Thank you for coming. Well, does that um, mean I, I get did, a follow-up question? You, you do. I, absolutely. <laughs> my uh, my follow-up was, is kind of twofold. One, uh, with respect to uh, your comments a moment ago about uh, the PCM, I'm, I'm curious uh, if you would... Um, how how important is it to get that that capacity pricing or the the incentive correct? Um, uh, conversely, it, would it be easier simply to force forfeit of you know a an extended period of time's worth of um, the capacity credit you got uh, should should you fail to perform? Um, and the other question I had was from the very beginning of the conversation, and it's it's somewhat related in the sense that. Considering resource adequacy and capacity and the concept of resource adequacy and and, uh, the reliability component of it, um, how do you differentiate between those two things and dispatchability? Um, And the demand response comment um, had me biting my tongue because it's capacity, but it's not dispatchable. And so considering, considering those three things, how do you differentiate between the three? Uh, Well, I think the, the, so maybe I'll take a, a a little bit of a different definition on dispatchability and um, and say you know in principle an energy only market uh, you don't need to make any evaluation in advance on on how something will perform you just see how the system performs you set efficient prices and then you compensate people accordingly and. Um, and then, so if if somebody, regardless of whether you dispatched it or it, it did it of its own volition, um, if they reduce their consumption, then they uh, then then they get compensated for that. And there's going to be nuances and in, in, in intricacies in, in terms of did we dispatch the system slightly incorrectly because there's a lag between the the solution of the economic dispatch and the actual operation system, and we're solving for five minute periods. There's going to be nuances there that aren't completely captured. But I think to first order, you get uh, a, a more or less accurate valuation and compensation for uh, for different resources. So to tie this back to the distinction between capacity and resource adequacy, uh, clearly when you when you model the situation or when you model and simulate the system, you can run into situations where you have a ramping constraint or a transmission constraint or a uh, uh, you know uncertainty that's causing you to hold back water in your reservoir 
or store charge in your battery or things like that, that change the actual operation of the system relative to the evaluation that you would make in a capacity accreditation. And uh, all of this bluntness that's in, in capacity accreditation uh, relative to real world operations uh, gives an opportunity for a mismatch between resource adequacy, which is you know being able to deliver energy to the right time at the right at the right time to the right place in the grid, uh, versus capacity accreditation, which is much blunter uh, and 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 kind of leaves out a lot of the operational detail. And um, so dispatchability kind of ties into that where. Um, you know, there's all of these operational constraints that that show up in the real world, but don't show up in capacity accreditation models that uh, uh, give rise to to disconnects between what capacity you have and, and and whether that's actually adequacy. I I think that really helped me, like from the beginning of this episode, where I was confused. Um, and got capacity and resource adequacy. And slowly I've come, kind of learned through the episode. And I think that kind of did a nice little uh, period at the end where I think it makes a bunch of more sense to me, the distinctions between capacity and resource I adequacy. I should have led so, with that then. No, I, I, I had to have the beginning. I had to go on the journey with you. And we've gone on a journey. Matt, I did want to give you the opportunity. Were there any articles in the TLDR segment you wanted to talk about? It, um, form energy um, is super exciting. The idea of, of de-rusting as a battery um, makes a heck of a lot more sense to me than Bitcoin as a battery. Let's, let's not go into that. The, uh, um, the idea that um, we're talking um, three megawatts an acre. Was that what, um, was that that final number? Yeah. Um, I, that, that, they made that it sound like that was good, but that lot. seemed bad. That, yeah. That's a lot of land. You know, um, because, yeah, it's that a seems farm. like a, a big footprint for three megawatts. Yeah. But and I don't know how you come to that. Um, and especially given the given the kilowatt cost, um, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I'm super excited about the technology. Uh, I think we all have a ton of respect for the people we know who are involved in the project. Um, I know I do anyway. Uh, yeah. And so it'll be it'll be fun. But that one that that stuck out for me, and so I'm really interested and excited to learn more about it. And I haven't learned or I haven't seen discussions about like what their dispatch curve is. Like, what is your ramp rate? How much can like how much can you actually flow in or flow out? They put out? some qualifiers out there saying, you know, this, they're not able to respond as quickly as lithium ion, which. Right. I mean, we're talking about rust. I'm not surprised. Yeah, exactly. But it's uh, I'm really curious about like, ramp rate stuff and how responsive it can be and how long a duration can you store which is yeah. probably the thing it's best at, right? As described, the long thing duration. it's best at is saving energy for a long time. So it'll be time shifting, time shifting, hopefully seasonal. You know, I think that's um, what it's targeting. Not just diurnal, really yeah. yeah. Anything you wanted to follow up on, Almaz? I'm good. Okay. Well, I want to thank all of you for doing this. This was so much fun. We ran a little bit over time. It's going to be a super long episode, like I said. But wonderful job, Professor Mays. I hope you feel valued and appreciated. Absolutely. Was a, this was a great conversation as far as I was concerned. I enjoyed yes. every minute of it. Uh, Matt, thank you for coming back and joining us. Do you feel valued and appreciated? Very much so. Uh, very happy to be back. And uh, it, was, it was great to make your acquaintance, uh, Professor Mays. Thank you once again. And to, see, and, to, and to finally do an episode with you, Almas. I've listened to plenty, but uh, I've yet to have the pleasure myself. So 
Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Amaz, for doing the insightful question and for being a participant and a co-host. So thank you, Amaz. Do you feel uh, valued and appreciated? I do. And thank you, Jacob, for being a good sport uh, <laughs> with the unscripted question that just randomly crosses my head. Best part of every episode. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from power department's perspective. You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to ways to consume all this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Thanks to Northwest Requirement Utilities and our co-star Matt, Northwest Requirement Utilities advocates on behalf of its members for cost-effective and reliable wholesale power supply and transmission service, including transfer service from Bonneville Power Administration. It also educates and informs members about BPA and other regional power supply and transmission issues. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletter to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. No, we aren't perfect. Sometimes it's a bust. But we'll roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. Views expressed to your own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, Northwest Requirements Utilities, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Today's episode was written by Paul Dockery, Amaz Nagesh, and Matthew Shretnik. And it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden, with sound mixing by Lucas Smith, and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in.